Uh, you can open up your Bible to the book of 2 Corinthians. That's where we're going to start here in just a minute. Uh, some of you already purchased, uh, the, we have some booklets. They're just $4 there at the Resource Center, uh, the bookstore as some call it. It has the text of 2 Corinthians in it. We still have some of those left, I think, if you'd like to have that over the next couple months, uh, even as we go through this letter of Scripture. It has the text of the Word uh, and then some note pages side by side. So if those are of help to you or you think they maybe have helped you. I'd encourage you to check those out. Uh, maybe grab one even on your way out this morning if you haven't yet. But as you're finding 2 Corinthians, wanted to, to share, uh, a, not a story, but just something that was brought to mind as I was preparing for this passage this week. Last year was a hard year, 2020, on all, in all sorts of ways was a hard year. Uh, there was a lot of bad news that came, and some of it kind of just got added into the mix, and we might forget it, um, but there's certain things, certain things we heard about or that happened in the world that kind of lodge in our minds that are probably going to stick with us for a while amongst that list, and one that, that stuck with me for whatever reason, and maybe you didn't even hear of it, or it might not uh, feel as big of a deal to you, was... Uh, in August of last year, I heard about the passing of an actor uh, named Chadwick Boseman. Some of you might not know who he is, and that's okay, but in August of 2020, uh, he passed away at the young, relatively young age of 43. Uh, he, if you don't know who he is, he is best known for playing in recent years a, a superhero uh, named King T'Challa in the movie Black Panther, uh, if you've seen that movie. And uh, he became, for various reasons, sort of a, a real-life hero to many people, even in our country and around the world, uh, this, this actor Chadwick Boseman. But he passed away relatively unexpectedly, at least what it seemed like to the world, in August and his, his death was startling, because, not just because of how young he was, but because what, came to, what we came to find out was he had actually been battling colon cancer for four years, but had told pretty much no one about it. Uh, even as he was acting, even as he was producing these worldwide blockbuster movies, uh, even as he was part of that living very much in the public eye, he was privately battling colon cancer that proceeded in, the, in stages of severity and even up to the end had told almost no one about it uh, until his passing. And his friends afterward, they, uh, reporters interviewed a few of his friends and family who knew him well, trying to inquire, why was that? Why, why didn't he tell people? Why, uh, why were we caught off guard by that? And they said things that, that we might expect, saying, you know, he was a really private person. He, he didn't like to just uh, put all of his life out there for everybody to see. Uh, he was a private person. But they said even more than that. They said that even though he was always glad and willing to bear the burdens of other people, that they said he was reluctant to have other people have to carry his. That he, he didn't want people to feel like they had to carry his weight, that they had to shoulder his burdens even though he was willing to shoulder theirs. And as I've thought about that, it, it seems like that could be a noble thing. That, that could seem, maybe it was, I'm not making any comments about what was going on in his heart or life, but that could seem like a noble thing to think, you know, my sufferings are my own, I'm going to keep them to myself, I, I don't need people to bear this with me. But even though that seems noble to me, the more I've thought about it and what he must have been going through is just sad. It's sad to me that, that, and I don't, again, I don't know what was happening in his heart and life, but I've talked with enough people and I've lived enough years myself to know that there's this temptation that we face as human beings, especially in our day and age today, to hide our weakness, to, to not want other people to know about it. 
to, to, to even if I have in, incredibly hard things that are, are weighing down on me, to just keep those to myself and not let others in, to not make them aware, to not let them know. We try to, to exude strength, I think, in our culture. And this is cross-culture. This is in a lot of cultures. But we try to exude strength all the time. We try to act as if we have all the answers, if we have everything strong. And the world, from the time that we're little, the world will teach us that we need, I would say this way, that we need to kind of stand up and flex our muscles. We need to show how strong that we are. We need to, I mean, in the spirit of Chadwick Boseman, almost pretend like we're superheroes. Pretend that we're, in, that we're not vulnerable, that we are strong. So the world teaches us to stand up and flex, but what Christ teaches us is something very different. And what we're going to see in 2 Corinthians, Christ teaches us to bend down and to kneel and to acknowledge our weakness. Not to hide it, not to pretend it's not there, but to acknowledge it. And this is a message that we're going to see in 2 Corinthians as we go through this letter and that we all need to hear, myself included, and you need to hear. The, a way I would summarize the message of 2 Corinthians that we're about to launch into would be this, is that our weakness is not to be concealed, it's to be celebrated. Weakness is not something to be concealed and hidden from others, but it's something to be celebrated. And only the gospel of Christ can teach us that that is true and that life should be lived that way. That our, our weaknesses are to be celebrated, not concealed. And so we're going to come to 2 Corinthians this morning, this, this letter that we call 2 Corinthians, and we'll get into some of the background of it. But that is going to be the message That's, that counters everything you will hear from the world, that tells you to flex and stand up and act strong. This letter is going to tell us over and over, and God's going to tell us over and over through it to bend down and to kneel and to acknowledge our weakness, even celebrate our weakness, boast in our weakness. And so we ha we'll have much to learn from this letter uh, we'll have as we go through it the next few months I like to think of it almost like a sponge or a rag that has so much in it that we're just going to slowly try to wring out everything we can everything that God would have to say to us through this letter and we're going to start today here at the beginning of this letter that calls us to celebrate our weakness not to conceal it and so I'm going to read today and what we're going to uh, go through this morning is the first 11 verses of this letter so I'm going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 1 through 11 and then we'll walk back through it, learn some about this church at Corinth, and then start to see some of the principles, the, the ideas that Paul's going to bring up over and over and over again, and then we'll see the relevance that it has upon our lives even as we begin. But follow along with me in your copy of the scriptures, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, 
of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on your behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. This is the word of God. There's much that, that can be said from this text. Uh, we'll just be skimming the surface as we get into the beginning of this letter. But I wanted to start at the beginning of this text, the first couple verses in his greeting, his kind of entry uh, point of this letter to, to learn a little bit about this town of Corinth, this church, this man who's writing them. And then we'll get into verses 3 down through 11 as well. But it, we can learn a lot from this little greeting in verses 1 and 2. This was a letter that was sent by Paul to this church at Corinth, and he starts the letter like he does a lot of other ones, where he identifies himself, uh, who the, the writer of this letter was, as Paul, and then he says, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. It says, who is with him, who's writing with him, Timothy, our brother. When he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, that's Fairly normal for him when he was identifying himself. If you look at a lot of the other letters that he wrote, he wrote really similar things near the start of pretty much every letter that he wrote. But that phrase, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, would have had added significance as he wrote this letter in particular. Uh, as he wrote what we call 2 Corinthians, that phrase would have loomed large right at the start as this church heard this letter read when, they, when he says, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Because if you read through this letter, which we will over the next couple of months, especially as you get near the end of it, you can piece together what had been happening right before he sent this, like what prompted him to write this. And what you find out is that there were these people, there were these teachers in this city of Corinth, in this church, that Paul even refers to as, a, it may be like a mocking term, we don't know, but he calls them super apostles, uh, almost like superheroes. Uh, and what seems like it's going on, which is kind of tricky because we're hearing one side of a phone conversation almost as we read Paul's letters, but we don't know what they said to him. What it seems like was going on was that there were these teachers in Corinth who were starting to maybe intentionally, maybe not, start to kind of cast some doubt amongst this church about the legitimacy of who Paul was and his role as an apostle. Uh, which may seem strange to us, but that's what was going on. They were starting to, to doubt his role as an apostle, almost as if they were superior to him because of their speaking ability, because of how God blessed them in their life. Uh, they, they were presented and they were viewed almost as super apostles and Paul as an inferior apostle, one that maybe didn't have quite the standing as these other brothers who had been sent to them. And so this, this phrase, an apostle of Christ Jesus, looms large right at the front here because Paul is asserting it as absolute fact, as truth. I am an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And you're going to see as we read through this letter, this letter is pretty raw and emotional. You read through like a le another letter he wrote, like Romans, and it's just this like theological, almost like a systematic theology where he's just calmly articulating what the, the gospel is. So we get to look right into his heart. So he starts with that, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Then in verse 1 he says, to the church of God that is at Corinth. 
So there's a long backstory between Paul and this church. I don't have time to tell you all of it. Uh, you could read some yourself about it if you'd like to, but there's a long backstory between the man writing this letter and the church he's writing to. And a lot of it we get a glimpse of in the pages of the Bible itself. Paul had helped start this church. Okay? He, he was one of the people God used to start this church, to tell the good news to the people in this city at, at Corinth, and they had come to faith, and this, this church has started to form. Paul had spent even a few years there with them, and then he'd gone away. Uh, and they had, had then written some letters back and forth between each other, asking questions, clarifying things, one of which was the letter we call 1 Corinthians, uh, where Paul was writing some instruction to them, giving them some encouragement, commending them. So he, we at least have that letter he wrote to them from afar. Uh, but then as time went on, there was another visit that he made to them uh, where because of some things happening in this church, uh, he had had to visit them in person again a second time. Uh, and it was a rough visit. We'll get a look at some of this as we go through this letter, but he calls it a severe visit, a, 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 a difficult visit that he had to make to them. And then he even wrote them another letter that's not in our Bible uh, that he called a severe letter that he wrote to them. Uh, and so the, he had written that letter to them as well. Time keeps going on. And then what prompted him to write this letter that we call 2 Corinthians, which might be more like 4th or 5th or 6th, who knows, uh, Corinthians, but what we call 2nd, because it's the second one that we have a copy of, uh, what prompted him to write is he had received another report from Corinth about some things that were going on, and he's about to come visit them again. He's going to allude to that over and over in this letter. I'm about to come visit you again. Uh, but he writes this letter to kind of pave the way, to, to get ready to come back and be with them again in person. And so that's a little bit of the backstory of him and this church. That's, that's the setting that this letter was written in and received in. And then one other thing before we get into the heart of today's text. Verse 1, he says, To the church of God that's in Corinth, and then he says, With all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Achaia was like the name of the region that they were in. Okay, the Corinth was the city, Achaia was the region. So what Paul had in mind as he writes this letter to this church at Corinth was that they would read it themselves there in their gathering as a church, but then that they would copy it and pass it along to the other gatherings of believers that had started to spill out and spread out into that region. And the reason I, I point that out is I, I think this is instructive to us to know that even as the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, he knew that it would be read beyond Corinth. Like he, he kept that in mind as he was writing this, said there would be other believers who would eventually read this. And I would say he maybe even had in mind us, like people throughout time who would be, would be spread out over the world. I, I say often as we're beginning texts of scripture, and I'll say it again today, that this letter was written to the people of Corinth, but it was also equally written for us. So to them before us. Like God meant for this to be read by believers ongoingly in different settings even. There's much that we can learn even ourselves as we read this letter. So as we come to the heart of today's text, verses 3 to 11, now we know a little bit at least about the, the setting of this letter. As we come to verses 3 through 11, you see two ideas come back over and over, right? Of comfort and affliction. Uh, Paul Ref uses those words a lot in this text, and they're going to come up again and again in this letter, comfort and affliction. And Paul, I would say, he addresses the elephant in the room right at the beginning of this letter. Uh, and that would be his sufferings as an apostle. Uh, that would have been the elephant in the metaphorical room that, that he wanted to get on the table right at the beginning was, yes, I'm suffering, yes, it's awful, and I want you to know it. 
because that we talked about how they were doubting his apostleship. They were wondering if maybe he wasn't really all he was cracked up to be. One of the reasons we know that they started to doubt his apostleship was because of how hard his life was. His life was unspeakably hard. We'll read about some of it as we get further into this letter. But he, he had a difficult life. And some of these apostles, these super apostles, quote unquote, that came into Corinth, it seems like what they were doing was pointing to his life and saying, do you really think that's what, if he has this great news, this good news of Jesus, this resurrected Jesus that he's teaching us to believe in, do you really think if that was true and if he was really sent by that Jesus that his life would be this hard? That, that this would be that, this difficult for him? And so Paul, he knows what's going on in the, these people's minds. And instead of kind of burying the lead and just waiting, <laughs> waiting till later in the letter, he brings it, boom, right at the beginning. I, I want you to know about my sufferings. Verse 8, he says, like, I, wa- I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. He, he's wanting them to know it. He's even wanting them, I think, to know it's probably even worse than you know. It's probably even worse than you, my life is probably even harder than you think it is. I'm not going to try to sugarcoat it. It's awful. He even talks about how he despaired of life itself, right? Uh, In verse 8, in verse 9, he says that he felt like they had received the sentence of death. And we don't know exactly what experience he's talking about. There's a bunch of them that he could be referring to, where he was threatened, where he was suffering. We don't know which one, but we know there had been something that was really awful that had taken place in his life. And he introduces that right at the beginning and says, I own that. My life is hard. My life is more difficult than you even realize, but that doesn't undermine my authority as an apostle. If anything, it establishes it even more. It makes it more true as you see the way that I suffer. And so he introduces this idea of affliction at the very beginning. And I want to walk through this text and share a couple principles about affliction and comfort uh, that are going to be kind of like buds that shoot up out of the ground here at the start of the letter that are slowly, as as the letter goes on, are going to bloom and we'll see more and more. But a couple principles that are, are shooting up right out of the ground, so to speak, right here at the beginning of this letter as we think about comfort and affliction. Number one is going to be this. This principle that we'll see throughout this letter is that God comforts the afflicted. God comforts the afflicted. In verse 3, he starts with that, right? He calls God the Father. He calls him the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. That if comfort comes, if true comfort comes, it comes from God. He's the giver of it, right? But one thing, and I would note, Paul is reveling in that, delighting in that. He's not just stating as a fact. He's like, blessed be God because that's true of him, that that he comforts us. He's praising God for the comfort that God gives. But then he says this. He says that that God, in verse 4, he says, God comforts us in all our affliction. That is an important word, in all of our affliction. A lot of times when we think about comfort and the, the, the comfort we want God to provide to us, what Paul says is true about God is that God comforts us in our affliction. Not by taking it away, but in it he comforts us. He doesn't prevent it. He doesn't shield us from it. He doesn't remove it and immediately rescue us from it. He comforts us in our affliction. And he says that God comforts us in all our afflictions, right? Right? 
That is a glorious word as well, that God comforts us in all our afflictions. If you, my friends, if you are united with Jesus, if you've been bound with him by faith, that is true of you as well. There is no affliction you have walked through, are walking through, or will walk through, in which God is not seeking to comfort you. He comforts us in our affliction. He comforts us in all our affliction. And this is a glorious thing for us to remember that when we are in the midst of affliction, which we are either in or not far away from at every point in life, when we're in the midst of affliction, it is glorious to remember that God is with us, to what Pastor Larry was saying, God is with us in that affliction. And not in a detached way, but in a comforting way, that he's seeking to console our hearts, to give us hope, to give us courage as we face those things. He has sent his Holy Spirit to live within us, to encourage us, to minister to us as we walk through affliction, not just by removing us from it. So that's principle number one that we're going to see unfold in this letter is that God comforts the afflicted. Second thing that we see in this text as we keep going through it is that affliction bears fruit in our lives. Affliction bears fruit in our lives. And I, I would say that it bears fruit in how we're able to minister to other people. And then it also bears fruit just in how we process things ourselves in our own interior world, right? Our affliction, it bears fruit in other people's lives. We don't tend to think of it that way, but it, it bears fruit even in the lives of other people. And where I would show you that in this text is verse 4. He says that God comforts us in all our affliction. So there's comfort God provides. Then he says the reason, or the, the, the upshot of that, the fruit of that, he says is, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. And so th- what he's saying is that when we're going through affliction, God comforts us, and he does it so that we can comfort other people. That we receive comfort from God in our affliction, then we extend that. God uses that experience and that comfort we've received to be able to help us better comfort other people. And we've know, we know that to be true in our lives, don't we? we? You've probably seen that be true in your own life, either as the recipient of that type of comfort or sometimes as the giver of that type of comfort. When you have gone through affliction, when you've endured hardship in your life, there is an increased capacity you have, a God-given capacity to be able to minister to other people. Not that you couldn't before that, uh, but you have this now unique capacity. You have a better understanding of the things that person's probably dealing with, right? You have greater compassion upon them. You you have a greater uh, sympathy for them. And even more than that, you have a greater awareness of the temptations they're probably facing, don't you? Because you've experienced them yourselves. You know the, the temptation to bitterness when you're afflicted to anger when you're afflicted, to to jealousy of other people when you're afflicted. You've experienced those things and God has helped you to combat those things in your life and now you're able to help others do the same as they face affliction. So our affliction bears fruit in other people's lives, but in this text you also see it bears fruit even in our own lives, in our own hearts, our own interior world. Affliction can bear fruit. And I would point you to verse 9 to see this. Paul's been talking in verse 8 about that affliction that they experienced and where they despaired of life itself. In verse 9 he says, we felt we'd received the sentence of death. Then hear this. He says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. So he's saying this particular experience he walked through that was so heavy, that he unspeakably heavy for him to bear. He says that, that God used that to teach him something, 
to remind him of something, to press something deeper into his soul, and that was this, that I cannot rely on myself. I cannot fix this. I cannot spare myself from this situation. I can't remove myself from this situation. I must cast all of my hope upon God. I am powerless in this situation, but he is not. And I'm placing my hope, I'm setting my hope on a God who raises the dead. Like not just a God who can take my disease away or fix my problem or provide for me financially, but a God who can raise the dead and who has done it. He's saying that these afflictions, they had, they've done this thing in his heart that they can do in ours, that they rid ourselves of any illusion that we have of power and control. And they make us rely upon God. Superheroes are fictional, right? King T'Challa was fake. Chadwick Boseman was real and he was weak. And the same's true of us. Like we, when we face affliction, it shows us how weak we are and how dependent we are and setting our hope upon him. So that's a good fruit that it bears in our lives. It, it removes any idea we have of self-reliance. The third principle I want to show you in this text is this, that affliction will end. Affliction will end. Look at verse uh, 10 with me. He says this, he says, He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. And so what, a couple of things I would know that this, this shows us about Paul is that one is he knew afflictions were going to keep coming. Right? Whatever this big one was that God spared him from that he's praising God for, he knew that wasn't the last one. He knew that afflictions were going to keep coming, that he will deliver us again. And he had confidence that God would continue to show kindness to him. But this text shows even more than that, just knowing there's earthly afflictions that are going to come and another one and another one. He's asserting, because he's pointing to the one who raises the dead, that someday there will come a day when a final deliverance comes, when a final rescue comes, and there will be no more affliction. That there will be no next wave of suffering to come my way. I will face the last one and God will raise me up from the dead and there will be the end of affliction once and for all in my existence. And Paul is looking ahead to that and pointing them ahead to that and saying, I have confidence God's going to deliver us from the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. But if he doesn't and if I die, he will deliver me once and for all at the resurrection. And you see this over and over in this letter. This letter, I would say, is like just drenching with like an eternal perspective. Like Paul is trying to help them to see this life and the trial and they live in judgment by God. And he's wanting them to remember that as they face affliction in their own life. That's why later in this letter he can say that these sufferings are light and momentary afflictions. As weighty and awful as they are, he's saying they're light and momentary because someday, just as he raised Christ, he will raise us. I want to call you today, um, before I move to some practical application of this text, I want to, to call and to speak to any of you who are not yet trusting in Christ. This text gives tremendous hope and confidence and assurance to people if they're united with Jesus that someday affliction will end. That if you have been bound with Jesus, you will be raised to eternal life. You can be raised to eternal life, forgiven of your sin. But that is not a blanket promise to all human beings. 
affliction will end for those who've been united with Jesus because Christ suffered the wrath of God in our place on the cross. All the affliction, all the judgment that should be coming for us for eternity was placed upon Christ at the cross. So it might be removed from us. But if we do not repent of our sin and place our trust in Christ, the one who is crucified for our sin, the one who is raised from the dead, the sobering hard reality is that affliction will not end. Affliction will not end for those who are enemies of God. The worst that we experience in this life is just going to be the beginning for eternity. But praise God, that does not have to be the arc of our story. He has sent his son to suffer affliction on the cross in our place. To, to take our sin upon himself and to, to suffer God's judgment for our sin. And he raised him back up from the dead. And he says, come to me. Repent of your sins. Place your trust in my son who died for you and has been raised for you. And I can assure you that you are now my son or daughter. Now, those sufferings will come. And then for all eternity. That there will be a day when you will be raised from the dead just like Christ was raised from the dead. And that will be an end of affliction once and for all. So I appeal to you today before I share application. I want you to settle in your heart. Am I united with Christ? Am I one who someday can say my affliction will end? Or do I have more affliction waiting for me? And if you would like to talk about Christ and how you can know that assurance, that forgiveness, that peace, that, that grace and peace from verse 2 that can come to you through Jesus, I would love to talk with you. Whoever you came with would love to talk to you. Your mom or dad would love to talk to you and help you see how you can have hope and confidence of eternal life just like Paul did. I want to share a few words of application uh, as we uh, navigate this beginning portion of this letter before uh, we conclude. I'm going to have four simple points of application from this text uh, that will, will recur. These will be recurring ideas that come up in this text again and again as we go through this letter. But I wanted to, to draw out some application from today's text. And two of them are going to be things about how you handle affliction in your own life, and then two are going to be about how you help other people with affliction in theirs. The first one would be this, as you think about facing affliction in your own life. Very simply, I would say the first one is to embrace the reality of affliction. Embrace the reality of affliction. There is a, a poison that is starting to spread, and it's not new in our day and age, but it's spreading more and more in our day, in our culture. Uh, this poison of what people call the prosperity gospel. This idea that the good news of Jesus is a message to you that you can have, like one pastor who I will not name right now, says that you can have your best life now. That, that if you come to Christ, he's going to give you the desires of your heart. Your, your barns will be filled. Your family will be great. Your health will be strong. You'll have a long, healthy, peaceful life. That is absolute trash. Like, that is not true. Like, this letter tells you the exact opposite of that. Like, when you come to Christ, if anything, you should expect more difficulty. You should expect more suffering because that's what the life of Christ was. And if we're called into life with him, we should expect that suffering should come to us as well, not that we should be exempt from it. Suffering in the life of a person, affliction in your life or in the life of your friend or neighbor is not a sign in and of itself that you lack faith. It is not a sign that your, your faith is weak. This, 
There is a, a belief that some people call Christian triumphalism. It's this idea that because Christ was raised from the dead, we can live in this life, in this world, with all the glory that we could ever imagine. That if we just ask of God anything, he'll give it to us. He will remove every affliction. And that is not the good news of Jesus. The good news of Jesus is that day will come, but it's on the other side of death. It is when Christ will return. And right now, he allows suffering. He brings us to places of suffering because that is the life of Christ. That is the life of a Christian. There's a reason in verse 6 he talks about patiently enduring sufferings, right? God doesn't just remove them from us. Whether we're apostles or just normal Christians, God doesn't remove affliction. He leaves us in it and he helps us to patiently endure it, awaiting the day when affliction will go away once and for all. So we have to embrace that reality as God's people, to not buy into this lie or this belief that life is just supposed to be easy for Christians, that life is just supposed to be pleasant uh, and peaceful and happy. It is hard. It is difficult. Paul's life was difficult. Your life has been difficult, and you don't need to pretend that it's not. We need to embrace the reality of affliction. Second, I would say, as you think about your own life and how you face affliction, how you handle it, is very simply, I would say, that you need to share your afflictions. Share your afflictions with others. You do not need to hide the reality of suffering in your life. It is dangerous, I would even say, to hide the reality of suffering in your life. You do not need to be ashamed of affliction that you're dealing with. You don't need to be embarrassed about affliction that you are handling in your life. And we know this, you probably know this to be true. If you try to hide affliction, if you try to hide suffering, it is going to have damaging effects upon you. It is going to wreak havoc on your heart and soul. If you're trying to pretend to everybody else like everything is fine, when you know full well it's not. Like you're going to start to live a life that feels disingenuous with people. You're going to start to be tempted to be hopeless when you're just spinning it in your own mind and not talking. Is this my fault? Like, is this a sign that my faith is weak? If you're just dealing with it yourself, you're going to deal with jealousy towards other people, and you're going to be processing all this within your own heart and mind. And you need the help of other brothers and sisters to process that, to, to bear that. There's a reason Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware of my affliction. I want you to know it. And it's even worse, I want to tell you stuff you don't even know. And it's not to say that you need to air everything with everyone. But you do need to share your affliction. You need to tell people about it. You need to have people in your life, members of our church, friends that are believing that can help you through it who can help you to patiently endure the suffering. And we need to be careful, not, I will say this as a disclaimer, not to just share stuff, share affliction just for the sake of pity. It's like, woe is me, like aren't you so sad for me? But we share our affliction because we need encouragement and we need help. That's why we share it. And even because other people can learn from your suffering. They can learn by how they watch you go through affliction. And if you don't share that with them, you're withholding something from them. You're withholding a gift that God could use to give them to see what it looks like to patiently endure suffering as a Christian. 
So we should embrace reality of affliction in our life. We should share our afflictions. Two other ones that are more oriented to how you think of the afflictions of other people. And these are very simple, but they're important for us to do that we see in this text. The third is to comfort the afflicted. This is the most obvious application of this text today, is to comfort the afflicted. Paul describes a process in this text, doesn't he, in verses 3 and following, where he talks about Christians being afflicted, having affliction in their life. And he says, God comforts us. He gives us comfort. And then he says, that comfort with which we've been comforted, we use to comfort others. Not just that we're just conjuring it up ourselves, we're just thinking of good things to say, but he says, you've received comfort from God. Use that comfort and extend it to other people. Show it to other people. Don't just let it terminate at you. It's like, man, thank you, God, for the peace that you've given me. Give it to others. Multiply it. Share it with other people, the comfort that you have been given. God's comfort that he gives to Christians also often, I would say, usually comes through other Christians. That, that's how he comforts us, is through the comfort and encouragement of each other. So what that could look like can mean all sorts of things. It could, to comfort the afflicted in your life, at minimum, means that you are present with them. As much as you're able that you're even physically present with them. Sometimes people who are afflicted, admittedly, are not fun to be around. Sometimes they're the last people just interpersonally that we want to be with, but they're the first people we need to be with. That we need to be with them, talk with them, hear them, listen to them. That's another thing. We should listen to them. Being heard, being seen, being acknowledged when you are going through affliction is hugely encouraging to your soul. Not even just to be given answers and be given solutions, but to know that a brother or sister knows that I'm dealing with this and they're aware of the things that I'm wrestling with in my heart. So you need to listen to them. Not just offer quick solutions and try answers, but listen to what they're dealing with. Not diminishing it, not rushing through it. As you comfort them, do not, please, I have to learn this, do not try to just immediately fix their problem. You cannot, in like five minutes of conversation, undo years sometimes and, and decades sometimes of pain in a person's life. That is not your role. If God himself doesn't remove the affliction from them, like why do you think it is your, why do I think it's my job to do that? To just fix it, resolve it as if that's the answer. I am to comfort them in it. To help them walk through it. To help them try to have faith. To to fight for faith as they walk through this thing. That is my role as a brother or sister in Christ. And we kindly gently remind them of what is true and what will be true someday. We're not just ears, we're a mouth also, right? We're to communicate truth, we're to communicate hope to our brothers and sisters who are afflicted. But we need to do it gently, kindly, patiently, not just acting as if I remind you of the gospel, boom, that should just fix all your problems. But we give hope again and again and again and again. And God will use that in their life. Comforting the afflicted is not something that just pastors do or just counselors do. It is something that Christians do for each other. Like we're to comfort each other in our affliction. And the last thing, last point of application, this comes from verse 11, the end of this text, is to pray for the afflicted. To pray for those who are afflicted. 
Paul calls upon the Corinthians to help us by prayer. That's what he said. He says, you also must help us by prayer. This is a fascinating thing, given that he has just said, we set our hope on God. We set our hope on him, the one who raises the dead. We set our hope on him, but you help us by praying for us. That is a mystery that is hard to understand, but the same guy who's saying, I've set my hope wholly, totally on God, is saying, pray for me. Pray for me. Because he knew that's often how God works. Is in God's providence, and God's mysterious will to us sometimes, the way, the, the, the avenue by which God provides help and comfort is through the prayers of his people. As we pray for each other, as we intercede for each other, God gives help. We, can, we should pray for deliverance, I would say, for our brothers and sisters. We should pray that. We should pray that God would remove these afflictions for them. But we also should pray even beyond that, that if he does not, that God would give them comfort, that God would give them peace, that God would give them hope, that God would give them a resolve to press on in faith to the very end. That God would give them obedience. That God would give them contentment. That God would give them patience. Those are the types of things that we need to be praying for our brothers and sisters who are afflicted. And God will grant blessing to them through the prayers of many. That's the channel by which he often gives blessing. We're going to give you a chance to do that here in just a moment. To pray for the afflicted. We're going to take time before we sing our closing song. To just pray for the afflicted that we know in our lives. Whether it's ourself people in our family, in our life group, in our church. We're going to give you a moment to do that. But I, I want to share a quote from, uh, I always share quotes from Charles Spurgeon. Uh, so I want to share a quote from him that I think uh, summarizes a lot of the message. He said this, he said, God does not need your strength. He has more than enough of power of his own. He asks for your weakness he has none of that himself. And he is longing, therefore, to take your weakness and use it as the instrument in his own mighty hand. Will you not yield your weakness to him and receive his strength? Now, that is so true. That is, that's the message of Second Corinthians in a nutshell. Is we are weak, like we sing, and Jesus loves the little children. Right? We are weak, but he is strong. That we are small, we are limited, we are suffering, we are afflicted. God comforts us in our affliction. We ought to not just rush to be removed from that affliction, but to seek to be faithful in it. So I'm going to invite you to stand uh, where you are. We're going to take a few moments, and the worship team is going to come up. And we're going to, uh, maybe even we'll have Marcos pray, play guitar just briefly. But in a moment, I want to give you a minute, a few minutes, to pray for people who are afflicted that you know in life. Uh, people who are going through difficulty, people who are going through challenge, uh, and pray for them. Pray for God's uh, freedom that he can give to them, the, the freedom from that affliction, if he would be so kind to give it. But also pray for them in the midst of it. Pray that God would give them hopefulness, that God would give them peace, that God would give them uh, gladness of heart, a, a patience to endure what he brings. So I'm going to say a brief prayer to get us started. Then you're going to have a, a minute or two to just pray where you are. I'll say a short prayer to wrap that, and then we'll sing one more song uh, together. But let me pray for us.